as you probably know, one of the key prerequisites to living the fullness of the Catholic thing is to cultivate a deep sense of mere devotion, both in our hearts and in the hearts of other people, which, as you probably know, is a lot easier said than done, right? Because in a certain sense, mere devotion is not unlike trust, it's not unlike love. It can never be forced. You can never force someone to trust another person. You can never force someone to love another person. These things must always be freely given, freely received. And perhaps I might suggest that this principle is especially true when it comes to Marian devotion. Because if we think about what is Marian devotion at the end of the day, it's this idea of entrusting my entire life to the Blessed Virgin Mary, entrusting my entire life to her maternal care. Everything in the temporal realm, everything in the spiritual realm, all the merits of my good works, past, present, and future, given to her, right? Everything that I have, everything that I am, everything that I will be, given to Jesus' mother to be done with according to her will, right? And once you understand that, perhaps you might begin to appreciate why the decision to devote your life to the Blessed Virgin has to be made purely from a free standpoint, right? Because of course, the implications of such a decision have massive implications for your life, personally speaking. Now, of course, this kind of begs the obvious question, like, what do you do with that, right? I mean, if it's true that encouraging other people to cultivate a deep sense of Marian devotion is sort of akin to encouraging people to trust and to love, and therefore is more like encouraging people to make a free act of the will, again, well, like, what do you do with that? Well, in a general sense, perhaps I must suggest that the key to resolving this particular problem is to remind ourselves that when it comes to evangelization, it's usually a better way to go the way of the carrot as opposed to the stick, right? To not speak to people in terms of obligation or force forcing people to go in a certain direction, but to propose the faith, to propose the gospel in a really attractive sort of way. And so, for example, when it comes to the Blessed Virgin Mary, something that's really helpful is to show people different passages in the gospel pertaining to the Blessed Virgin Mary and to show them what the gospel, what the sacred word of God reveals about what Mary is like, what it reveals about Mary's immaculate heart. And the whole idea is that once you get to know Mary through the sacred word of God, very naturally you'll want to get to know her more, you'll, you'll want to trust her more, and you'll want to eventually love her more. Case in point, think about this really famous story in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, otherwise known as the Wedding of Cana. And so if you're used to praying the Rosary, you probably come across this particular story time and time again, specifically in the context of these so-called joyful mysteries. And so you probably know how it goes, right? So basically in the context of the story, there's Jesus and there's Mary and Jesus' disciples, and they all attend this wedding of this couple. And suddenly what we find in the context of the story is that the couple is running out of wine, which would obviously be a massive social embarrassment, not just to them, but to their extended family, right? And so so Mary notices that this is a problem, and so she very casually turns to her son and says, they have no wine. In response to what Jesus says to her, woman, what is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Now, in order to fully appreciate what Jesus is saying here, you need to kind of unpack certain key terms and concepts, beginning with the notion of woman, right? So again, Jesus says to his mother, woman, what is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Now, of course, from our kind of modern perspective, when you hear Jesus call his mother woman, it sounds kind of weird and it sounds kind of rude. It sounds like something that will come from the mouth of a petulant teenager as opposed to something befitting the incarnate Son of God. And yet, that's what Jesus calls his mother. Which begs the question, what's he doing here? Well, basically what's happening here is that in calling his blessed mother woman, Jesus is alluding to this really famous prophecy in the book of Genesis chapter 3, otherwise known as the Proto-Evangelium or the First Gospel. And so, as you might recall, in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, there's obviously the creation narrative, following which there's a story of our first parents, Adam and Eve, right, who fall into original sin as a result of being tempted by the ancient serpent, who is otherwise known as the devil. 
And of course, when God ultimately confronts the ancient serpent, what he says to him are the words which constitute the Proto-Evangelium. So basically what he says is, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And so given all that, in the context of the wedding of Cana, when Jesus calls his blessed mother woman, what he's basically doing is that he's identifying her explicitly, actually, as the woman or the new Eve from the book of Genesis chapter 3. She's the one whose seed or whose son will crush the head of the ancient serpent as prophesied in the so-called Proto-Evangelium, otherwise known as the first gospel. So that's kind of the first thing. But the second issue is this. What does Jesus mean when he speaks about his hour? Again, as in a woman, what is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Well, generally speaking, the hour refers to the fulfillment of the Messianic age. But specifically what it refers to is the Lord's suffering and death on the cross, where he will suffer and die for the salvation of the world. So that's what's being meant by this notion of the hour. But that brings us to our third point, which is basically the biblical significance of wine, especially as you find in the Old Testament. So basically in the context of the Old Testament, wine could represent a whole bunch of different things, right? It could represent the union between husband and wife. It could represent wisdom. It could represent the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But more commonly speaking, wine, especially if it was a great abundance of wine, was indicative of the inauguration of the Messianic age. And so basically what Jesus is doing here, he's trying to reframe the issue. So from Mary's perspective, when she says they have no wine, she's thinking purely in terms of the physical situation, the temporal situation. She's thinking about the embarrassment that would be caused to the couple and their extended family if they happen to run out of wine on the occasion of their wedding day. But again, Jesus is trying to reframe the issue. And so instead of thinking purely in terms of physical or temporal terms, he's trying to reframe the issue in terms of spiritual and even prophetic terms, to look at wine and the invitation to produce a great abundance of wine as being symbolic again of the inauguration of the Messianic age. Okay, so if you put it all together, what the Lord is basically saying to his blessed mother in this really short and pithy response to her is basically this. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this thing that you're implicitly inviting me to do. I can change the water into wine. And it'll be great for the couple. It'll be great for the wedding. It'll be certainly great for the guests, right? But it will also come at a terrible price for you and for me, right? Because if I do this thing, if I do this, this great miracle, this first of my many miracles, which are yet to come, it will officially begin my public life. The clock will start ticking. I'll be that much closer to my own suffering and death on the cross for the salvation of the world. And more to the point, our time together, our precious time together as mother and son during these so-called hidden years of Nazareth, they'll be abbreviated even further. And so therefore the question I have for you, mother, is basically this. Is that what you want? Is that really what you want? Are you willing to do this thing, to sacrifice all these things, such that the people of God might have joy? Now, maybe it's just me, but I always imagine that when Mary hears Jesus' response, again, woman, what is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. I always imagine that because of her great intimacy with the Blessed Trinity and because of her great knowledge of the Bible, she gets it. She gets the whole thing right away. As a result of which, all of a sudden the scene becomes really intense and extremely emotionally charged. So much so that Mary, I imagine, can't even bring herself to respond directly to Jesus or even look him in the eye. All she can do, because she is so sad, because her heart is so heavy in this moment, all she can do is turn to the servants nearby and say to them, do whatever he tells you. And so again, if we read between the lines, I always imagine that Mary is basically saying to her son something like this. It's fine. 
It really is fine, son. Like I, like I hear everything that you're saying. I understand that this will begin your public life. I understand you'll be that much closer to your suffering and death on the cross. I understand that our precious time together as mother and son will be cut short all the more. I understand all of that, but I'm willing to go through with it. And I say again that it's fine. And the reason why it's fine is because the people of God, they have no joy. And more to the point, son, they, they need you. Whether they realize it or not, they, they need you, they need Jesus. They need the inauguration of the Messianic age. And so again, with that, she turns to the servants and says to them, do whatever he tells you. And of course, with that, Jesus does this great miracle. And what a miracle it is. He produces, if you do the math, basically 120 gallons worth of wine. And it's the most amazing wine people have ever tasted or imagined. And it goes without saying that, therefore, the wedding is amazing. The couple is spared from social annihilation. The guests are obviously having a great time. And what we hear in the context of, of the sacred word of God is that God is glorified by this thing that Jesus does. And Jesus' disciples themselves, they start to believe in him because of this miracle. But at this point, I want to draw your attention to how the story actually ends. So it's one of those details where if you blink, you miss it. And so what we hear at the end of the gospel is that in the aftermath of this miracle, in the aftermath of this wedding, Jesus, his mother, his disciples, they go back to Capernaum, where Jesus basically spends a couple of days before he officially begins his public ministry. In the aftermath of which it is strongly implied that he never goes home ever again. He has firmly set his face to begin the public ministry. And so therefore, his time with his mother has really come to a close. And that's how the story basically ends. Now, obviously, there's kind of a lot going on here, but I want to draw your attention to basically two key points in the context of this particular gospel in terms of what they reveal to us about the immaculate heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So the first thing is basically this. The couple in question, the couple is basically getting married in the context of the story of the wedding of Cana. Even by the end of the story, they have no clue. They're completely oblivious to everything that's happened. And so, for example, they have no clue that Mary and Jesus have made this tremendous sacrifice such that they specifically might have joy. They're completely oblivious to the fact that they ran out of wine, and so Jesus had to change the water into wine. And they're completely oblivious to the fact that the only reason why this happened was because Mary interceded on their behalf. But you see, this speaks to the fact that even though Mary is obviously pleased to receive all of our prayers in the context of God's divine providence, the fact of the matter is that regardless of how we pray to her, regardless of what we pray for, Mary is constantly interceding on our behalf before our Father in heaven. And why? Because Mary is not simply our friend, Mary actually is our mother. The mother of God is actually our mother. Okay, so that's kind of the first thing. But the second thing is basically this. The reality of just how much Mary actually cares for us. The reality of just how much the Blessed Virgin Mary actually cares for you and me. And so think of it like this. When you go back to the gospel, again, Mary says to her son some variation of, it's fine. It's fine that our time is cut short. It's fine that the Father calls you to suffer and die on the cross. And why? Not simply for something grand as the salvation of the world, although that would certainly make sense, but also for something as very simple as, otherwise the people of God will be sad. Otherwise the people of God will not be happy. Otherwise the people of God will lack joy. Because I desire this so much for the people of God, that they be happy, that every tear will be wiped away, that they will have authentic Christian joy, I'm willing to sacrifice everything. I'm willing truly to give everything and hold back nothing. Such is the Immaculate Heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary.
And you know, quite honestly, when you hear that, doesn't it make you want to get to know Mary a little bit better? Doesn't it make you want to trust her a little bit more? And doesn't it make you want to love her with the entirety of your hearts? And may God bless you all.